0: Um, Let me introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, As a group here, though we call ourselves a new community, we are surrounded by amazing people. Uh, There are amazing people in this community. There's amazing people that love this community. And one of those people, a friend of mine, Janine, is going to share this morning. Uh, She loves not only this city... Uh, But she loves a new community and then she loves college students and gets to pour into them on a regular basis at GU. So would you welcome with me Janine? Well, thank you. I am very excited to be here and I'm very nervous, which I know. Sometimes I've been doing this for a while and I'm still nervous, which makes me realize that there's something that I always tell myself, that I'm trying not to tell myself, which is, why are you here? You fooled them. Somehow, I'm not worth this. I have nothing to say. So this is kind of the story that sometimes runs through my head. And we're going to talk about story today, but I am. So if I take a deep breath, you'll realize it's just because I'm super nervous right now. Um, Russ and I have gone back quite a few years, and When I was called to Gonzaga to be a campus minister, I just saw how many GU students would come here and be poured into and transformed, and we thought it'd be fun to kind of partner in ways. So this is one of those ways, Um, and some of you are starting to be small group leaders, so I'm grateful. Um, And as we were talking about what to talk about, he was telling me kind of where you guys have been going with letters and Um, through Revelations and I was telling him about what God was doing in my life Um, which is I was given this devotion and I was kind of rolling my eyes because when anyone ever gives me something like that my first thought is do I need this why why are you giving me this something wrong with me and um, but I fell in love with this devotion and the devotion is kind of a one-year Bible devotion or something like that anyway day three of this devotion was this quote that some of you have heard that has really been sticking with me. And this is the quote by this guy, A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is one of the most important things about us. So what I mean by that is who you say God is, the answer to that question is one of the most important questions you will ever answer. Simply put... It's our view of God that directly influences everything else. What I mean by that is some of us have this idea that God, um, the view of God that we have is God is a dictator. Now, you may say, no, no, no. But what that means is if you have this idea that God is a dictator, then what you're doing is you're waiting for all the rules, and you're going to follow the rules. Or you may be someone that believes that God is this police officer, and you're just waiting for the ticket. And whenever you um, see a police car, or you, and I grew up with a police officer, which is kind of funny, but whenever you see that police car, you're like, <gasps> okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Or some of you may have that view of God, that God is that um, crazy uncle that comes into town and whenever you see him, they, they, he gives you gifts and you have the best time ever and you love that he wants to know you and he delights in you and you get all kinds of gifts. Could be a mixture of both, probably is, could be something else. But what it says is that view informs the story that you live. So we're going to unpack that today, and since I got to kind of create this, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at football, we're going to look at Harry Potter, because I love Harry Potter, and we're going to look, um, look at our stories. So I began my journey of football, because we got to do a nod to the sacred day, I began the journey of football in California, and I um, am from, if I was going to wear my shirt up here, the only shirt, I grew up with two shirts, but the only shirt I really could show you that formed me most, and no booing right now, is um, the Oakland Raiders. Now, oh, is there some Raider fans? Okay. Well, I have to say, though, I would say that I am a old school Oakland fan. I'm a Madden Oakland Raider fan. That's a little different than the scary face painters of today, (laughs) but I grew up in a house um, which, you know, there will be 70,000 fanatics sitting in seats in a few hours watching the most significant game ever, which is the Super Bowl, and football for some is their religion. That would have been my house. I don't come from a family of faith. I come from a family of football, and from an early age, that day, that religious ritual formed me. And I remember we'd wear our shirts, and there would be all kinds of making of food, and there would be this holy beverage that I wasn't allowed to have, um, and we would watch the game. And growing up, for a long time, that was super fun. We'd run around, we'd eat lots. I remember my mom and dad driving me all over Northern California to different auto um, car dealerships to meet Raider fans, because somehow Raider fans like car dealerships. I don't know why, but... And I remember, like, wearing the Super Bowl ring. I mean, crazy stuff. Um, We even painted our faces. Well, as I got older, um, there was more experiences with that. That sacred drink um, was defining what football was. So what happened when I got to be probably elementary school is all of a sudden when my perspective got bigger, I recognized that um, mom and dad and everyone that came over they would kind of get so focused on the TV and the drink and they kind of changed that it didn't become fun because they weren't present to any of us. And it kind of felt scary. And then as I got older, right, not only did I see the sacred drink causing really hard problems in my relationships and in my family's relationships, and then when I started looking at the statistics of what happened to football players... You know, the average lifespan of a football player? You guys know this, how old they are? 50? Yeah. And as I started thinking of just the politics connected to what we do with football... Now, granted, I love football, so I'm not trying to be a downer on football. But there's something about football that's kind of like contemporary gladiator. So all of a sudden, my culture and my experience shaped my view of football. And by the time I was in college... I wanted nothing of it, because for me personally, it was kind of about pain and disappointment, and it was kind of about um, the injustice, injustice of our society. Now, we, um, until our third child came around, and my third child is a fanatic. He's also a natural athlete. Um, He loves football. He loves the game. He loves to dress up. He loves to swagger. Um, One of my friends here hangs out with him a lot. He loves football. And seeing his his delight, and then all of a sudden our story of the family has kind of changed with how we do football. And so now I'm back to football, and we're having a big party. It's going to be fun today. (laughs) But that is my journey of football. And what I want us to connect with is How much our culture and our experience affects our views. So just like my culture and my experience affect my view of football, our culture and our experience affects our view of God. So this morning, um, we are going to look at how that does that. And we're going to do that with two ways. When I fell in love with Jesus, it was in fourth grade. It started in fourth grade. By the time I was in high school and I realized I want to follow this God, I want to make this my life, to integrate it into Changing the world for Jesus. Um, The place I went first was the prophets. Don't know why, (laughs) but I did. And I fell in love with Isaiah and Jeremiah. And as I have grown in my relationship with Jesus, I realized the two things about those two prophets is that Jesus taught Jeremiah, he lived, uh, he taught Isaiah, and he lived Jeremiah. So today we're going to look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and see how those things can help us with this idea of our story. And how we fit in with God. So, I would love for us to pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us with this this scripture. So pray with me. Holy Spirit, I am grateful that you are with us. That God, you take these words, these scriptures, and that they can form us and transform us. So Lord, let these words come alive in a way that we haven't heard and allow it to move us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Our first scripture is going to come from Jeremiah, and this is um, a passage that, it's the second most popular Jeremiah passage, I think, and this is from Jeremiah 1, 4 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So that's Jeremiah, and we're going to take Jeremiah and we're going to put it on hold for a sec, because the chunk I want to look at real quick is Isaiah this next passage, but before we look at Isaiah, I want to kind of do a little bit of unpacking of who Isaiah was, because as I started preparing for this talk, I realized, oh my gosh, I forget about the ancient Near East, and what was happening with the people of Israel, and it's super significant, because they are our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, and how we have been formed as Jesus followers is because Jesus was formed by them, so here's the cool thing about Isaiah. First of all, when you think prophets, what do you think of? Yell out your characteristic of a prophet. What? Old. Old. Okay, yeah, so Jeremiah was young. Jeremiah was a kid, so that's pretty different than what we think prophets are. What else? Smart? Smart? That's good. I wouldn't have said that. (laughs) But Isaiah is really smart. (laughs) crazy oh that's totally me. we're on the same. they're crazy what do they do do you guys remember some of the crazy stories what did isaiah do later in the book he goes naked he streaks around naked hey like i was just thinking what do you do in the village you're totally naked and you're just walking around saying remember god god's gonna do something soon yeah does anyone remember what ezekiel did is it ezekiel right That ate the is that ezekiel or Habakkuk, okay, they're crazy, anyway, they do a lot of things, like they eat papers, and they um, lay on their side for 248 and a half days, something like that, I don't know, but they are very powerful and prophetic and crazy, and I never, well, they are, they're prophetic, and I always thought they were crazy, I hadn't connected the powerful intellectual piece, Isaiah is one of those, Isaiah was, um, was bred, he was born into a family of royalty, they think, he was very articulate, very intellectual. If you are a scholar and you read the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, what you do is you realize that Isaiah is so well-crafted that it is the strongest book liter- literary, literature-wise in, um, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. And what you realize, too, is how articulate and well-known and um, Isaiah was. So Isaiah was this prophet that would walk around um, in the royal courts they listened to him. He was powerful. Uh, he thought he understood by his culture and his experience who God is. In the books of the um, prophets, by the way, if you look at the call narrative, that means the story of how they're called, it usually happens, happens in chapter one. So if you look at Jeremiah, if you look at Ezekiel, those are the big ones, that's why I keep using them. Um, if you look at Micah, usually their, their story of how they were called happens in chapter one. Today, we look at Isaiah 6, and a lot of us have n- looked at this passage as the call passage. But it's not in chapter 1, it's in chapter, one, uh, chapter 6. And I'm going to challenge us to think, maybe perhaps this isn't the call passage, but maybe this is a conversion passage. So here now as I read Isaiah chapter 6, and then I'm going to ask a question of you. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Those are like divine beings. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal, and that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and the seraph touched my mouth. And it said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now that is why we call that a call story, which it is, but something bigger happened in this story. This is what I want you to do to the person next to you, and if you're like me and you hate this part, it's okay. Um, I would love for you to turn to the person next to you to talk about what do I know about these prophets? what did I just hear in those last two passages? That's the first question. That's actually, no, that's the second question. The first will go shallow. Do you like football? Who are you voting for or rooting for? Look, voting. That tells you how long away I've been apart from this. So what about football? What about the prophets and what you just heard? So on your mark, talk amongst yourselves just for a second. So we kind of know the background of Isaiah. Now I kind of want to unpack why this story can teach us a lot about um, our view of God and the story we live in. First of all, um, I said that this was a call story because we see him saying, here I I am, Lord, send me. That is a call. But it's also a conversion story. This is why. And in order to understand this, though, we have to look at temple theology. And I had so much fun going back to the Old Testament for this because I forget that all of this matters. So I want you to look up here. This is what Solomon's temple um, looked like. This is kind of a standard temple of the ancient Near East. Now, if we remember, we need to remember that when we are looking at Isaiah and we're looking at Jeremiah, we're looking at a time when these temples were everywhere, Back there, these temples were there for all the gods because we were we're living back then in a polytheistic culture. Okay, so there would have been Yahweh. There would have been a temple for Yahweh, but there's also temples for Saturn and um, Zeus, and there's like lots of temples all over the place, and they still looked like this. A temple, the way it was, the way it was laid out, would be that you would enter into one area. And then you would go all the way to the back. The very back would be where the, the God would, would live. That would be the hope. So for the, for the Hebrew tradition, they would have, in the Holy of Holies, they'd have the Ark of the Covenant. This is, and I'm kind of giving you the idea of what the temple looked like pre-Solomon. And that temple looked that way for most of the gods. Why? This is why. The idea in the culture back then was that if you could somehow get the God attracted into your temple, we would do that by sacrificing, and we could sacrifice different things depending on what we thought the God would want or the goddess would want. If we could get them into our temple, we kind of thought this could be a God trap. Doesn't that sound like humans? (laughs) Let's figure out a way to control. (laughs) But what we would do is we'd think if they could get in here and they could get to the very back, then they'd stay. And as much as we sacrifice and do what we need to do, then they could stay there. Okay, that's how it worked. A lot of the times, um, the, the, the standard size of what would be in the Holy of Holies, originally the Ark of the Covenant, wasn't that big. It was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was like a treasure chest. That was very low, low school right there, but that's what it is. Um, when Solomon decided to build the, this temple... Solomon made things bigger so originally the gods in the temples would be a little taller than me probably six foot I think if you if they looked at like standards when Solomon came all of a sudden he kind of made things bigger by the way what's interesting about Solomon in scripture God didn't tell him to build the temple that's a side note kind of interesting and I think it tells us something about what happens down the road but anyway we go to Solomon we see the temple this time God, the place for where the Holy Holies, where the Ark is, it's even bigger. Everything is about the God that the God that will rest in the Holy of Holies is like thirty feet tall now. So Solomon makes this view of God that's bigger than all the other gods. That's the shift. Yahweh now is bigger than all the other gods. So Isaiah is raised and born in this notion that this is what the temple looks like, this is what we do in the temple, this is how big God is. Our God's bigger than all the other gods, and our God is this big. And then Isaiah has this vision. Listen to what this vision says. It says that he has the vision And he saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lofty, and what did the hem, right? If you think of a robe, the hem is the last part of the robe. What did the hem do? It filled the temple. So all of a sudden, Isaiah says, whoa, this God isn't 30 feet tall and sitting in the back here. All I could see is the hem of his temple. Not even the skirt, not even, he only sees the hem of the temple. And in that experience, Isaiah realizes, oh, oh, what I thought I understood about who God is, it's way, way bigger. Because what does he say? Woe is me. Why did we think of this? I always read the scripture and thought he was just saying, woe is me, because he just saw that God was, you know, he was in the midst of God. I had never thought about the fact that why was he saying, oh no, I suck. That's kind of my version of that. (laughs) It's because he needed a bigger view. He didn't have the view of God that God wanted him to have. And then what happens is the seraphim... Oh, and here's a really cool little side note to talk about over coffee or trivia. Seraphims were these celestial beings, and if you look at, like, pyramids, King Tut had seraphims. Seraphims were known in the ancient Near East to protect. They were the bodyguards. And you would have cherubims and seraphims. Seraphims were, like, these funky snake slash... They'd have wings. So if you go back and look, they're very creative... The seraphims were always the big, buff bodyguards. What do we see here? What, was, what are the seraphims doing? They're, they're covering themselves. They're not bodyguards. They're protecting themselves from who? From a God of everything, the God that just blew open the temple, the God that's bigger and more mysterious and cannot be contained the God that we can't compartmentalize. That is what Isaiah sees that day. And the beauty of what happens in that moment is Isaiah's like, oh my gosh, I blew it. And the seraphim goes, okay. (laughs) Touches his lips with the coal and says, now go speak. Now go speak the bigger story. That's the power of Isaiah. Isaiah. So, when we look at how our culture and our experience affect us, we realize that that creates a view of God. And that view of God affects the story we live in. What I would love for you to do with the person next to you for a moment is to share what do you feel like your primary view of God has been in your life? And again, if that's like way too much for you, just talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) But what is the, what do you feel like the primary view of God has been in your life? All right, five, four, three, two, one. That's a big question. I know there's more time for that. Culture affects, culture and experience affects the views we have. And then the views we have affects the story we leave in. So this is my question for you. What story are you living? And I think Jeremiah and Harry Potter will help us down this road. (laughs) I want you to look at this concept that's not my concept of a master story. So there is the story of me being a student or the story of me being a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse. But then there's the master story. The story that is our overarching story that kind of guides us, that's the story I'm asking. What story do you live? Do you lead? Now, the students at Gonzaga, which are here, and I asked lots of them to come because, you know, it's what I do, (laughs) Um, they know me. And some of them, when they get to know me, they know that I have a saying. So here's a quiz, and you'll have to shout it out if you know the answer. But I'll say, um, if they come into my office, I'll be like, my name's Janine, and I have a... Plan for your life. This is what I say to them all the time. It scares some of you, I know, because they don't realize that I'm half-joking, but I'm not half-joking. It's only half-joking. Because when I tell someone that I have a plan for their life, my friends that are priests and nuns, I always say that I have a plan for the Catholic Church's life, and they all giggle, and I'm like, I'm kind of serious. But, <laughs> but what I mean by that when I say it is that I want to know your story. I want to know your story. And then I want to help you see how God has this great part for your story. And then other times I fall in love with them and I want them to marry each other. That's also a side note. (laughs) But when I do say I have a plan for their life, I really want them to see that their story is supposed to be this greater, beautiful story. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable if we think about what Jeremiah told us today. Before you were born, I knew you and I formed you. I know you, God says. God knows each and every one of us that God, that God that is uncontainable, that God that can't compartmentalize, that we can't compartmentalize, that God knows us. Think about the vastness of the universe this ever-expanding cosmos, and this tiny planet Earth in an obscure corner of a medium-to-large-sized galaxy. Now think about the God who made all that, looking at each person here today, looking at each person on the planet, and he says, yep, I know you. Oh, yeah, I know you. Yeah, I know you. And that one, I know and I love It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Assuming we're not too old or cynical or enlightened to experience awe, it's an remarkable, awesome thing to think about that God that knows us. God knows you. And now for some Harry Potter. In the series, Harry Potter, because I reread it every year with my, or every child that I have will read the whole series. So I'm rereading with my youngest now. And Harry Potter is someone who was going about his life, minding his own business. If you guys haven't heard the story, I'm trying to unpack it a little, until one day he came to discover that he was known in a very special way, right? He lived with the Dursleys, this mean, vile aunt and uncle, made them live under a cabinet, right, or a cupboard for years, One day when he turns 11, someone is trying to get to know him. Right? Hagrid, who turns out to be kind of a seraph, a big bodyguard, (laughs) um, he says this in the first book How can you not know who you are? He roars. How can you not know what you are? Harry Potter, not knowing his own story. You see, Harry Potter is the boy who lived, he is the one. Who who has given people hope that maybe this Voldemort, that's the really bad guy, who has terrorized so many people and spread fear and horror, just might have a weakness. Maybe evil hasn't conquered, they think, because someone lived. This Harry Potter lived, and he has no idea who he is. He has no clue of his story. And what's more, he doesn't want the job of who he's supposed to be. He doesn't want to be the object of all this attention. It takes him seven books (laughs) um, (laughs) to figure out who he's supposed to be. (laughs) At the age of 15, he's asked to teach some of his fellow students some techniques to to keep the bad guys at bay, Um, which, by the way, he knows these techniques pretty well because he's kept the bad guys at bay for every book, (laughs) Um, but this is what he does. He comes up with excuses. We'll get in trouble. I don't know enough. I just got lucky. It's not me. I'm not a good teacher. I'm too young. Sounds like Jeremiah, huh? It's so, not so different for us to see this, to see this in Jeremiah, to see this in Harry Potter, to see it in us. Jeremiah, who is visited by the Spirit of God, the God that says to him, I know you. I've always known you, even when you didn't know me. And you, you will be a prophet to the nations. I've appointed you. And Jeremiah says, excuse me? And God says, no mistake, you're the one. We know that the Bible is full of people that reacted like Jeremiah did, and as Harry did. I'm a what? You want me to do what? And as I hang out with college students, I realize how often they feel the same way. They meet God, they feel this sense of call, and they'll say, oh, (laughs) and they go on about their business. Actually, it's not even college students. When I was a pastor down in town at another church, I think us grownups did the same thing. God meets us, we're invited on this journey, and we just go, oh, another day. Woe is us, is what I got to say to that. This, oh, I am really not good for this. That may look like modesty, but it can be woefully faithless. When the God of the universe comes calling, nudging, pleading, saying, you're my child, I love you, and I have a call for you. When we go about our business as usual, woe to us. I know no better illustration of this than um, the first book of Harry Potter, and it's in the movie that I think they do such a good job. It's when Harry Potter gets all those letters to go to Hogwarts. How many of you guys people saw Harry Potter? So I'm not, okay, I'll explain a little bit. So what happens is he, when you turn 11, you get to go to wizard school, and all these letters magically come to his house by owls, it's pretty fun. Um, And all the owls are flying with this letter. And the letter um, is just addressed to Harry Potter. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley are freaked out about this, and so they do not want to have any of it. So at first, they burn all the letters, and then more letters come. And they are going crazy. And at one point, he takes the mail slot. They have a mail slot that goes into the house. And he nails up um, wood. So nothing could come into the fireplace because they were coming through the fireplace. He nails that up. And then he nails up the mail slot. And he thinks he's won. And then all of a sudden, there's like this tremor. And all of a sudden, like hundreds of letters come through the house. Now, Uncle Vernon... Um, he thought he tried every book, um, every trick in the book to keep those letters out, but to no avail. Um, he learned that those letters would get to who they needed to get to because they were addressed specifically to one person, and he found out that he couldn't stop that. I wonder, though, when we think of how those letters were addressed, how your letters from God would be addressed to you. It could be your address in crystal clear, clear to everyone. Courtney Lynn, Happy Dale Avenue, Prosperity Village, con- Connected Land. But surely there are others who may be living a different address. Mike Smith, dead in job, feeling empty but unable to see a way out. Brittany, being eaten alive by depression, terrified to say anything to anyone. Sydney, wondering whether God cares or exists. Cecilia, crushed under the weight of too much busyness. What would your address be? Before we were formed in our mother's womb, God knew us. God loves us, and God invites us to a bigger story. Why do we resist the truth of that? Why do we resist that we are precious just as we are? Why do we proclaim in our theology that there's nothing we need to do to deserve God's love and then we work ourselves to the bone to be worthy? Why do we resist grace? Last week, Russ quoted one of my favorite authors who's Marjorie Thompson, and he was talking about our deepest fear is not that, that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Well, Marjorie Thompson in that book has another quote. She quotes another one of my favorite mentors. This is what it is. All human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. We resist grace because change grace will change us and change is painful. We resist it. We are so resistant to grace that we will go so far as to splinch ourselves. In Harry Potter, they were able to do this thing called apparate, and that meant they got to go from here, and let's say I just wanted coffee, and I would show up in Kerr Coffee downtown. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) And you just thought of it, and you got to go to that place. Well, if you weren't thinking fully on where you wanted to be, you could leave part of your body behind. So, in Harry Potter, when they're practicing apparating, sometimes they'd be splinched and their eyebrow would be left here and the rest of them would be over here. I think that we resist grace that we will spiritually splinch ourselves. We're so willing to believe what the world says about us, we're so eager to get away from God and from our God given selves that we will leave pieces of ourselves behind. We want to be liked. We want to get along, we want to feel safe, we want to be successful, we want a lot of shiny toys. We want to do things our own way. Imagine that, roars Hagrid. Harry Potter doesn't even know his own story. He doesn't even know who he is, how important he is, and how beloved he is. My question for you, brothers and sisters, do you know your story? That's what you're invited to, to know the better, greater story, to not resist grace, but trust in the one that formed you and knows you and live in that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God's people said, amen. Amen.